Hello and welcome to the 774 NGR podcast. Here we take stories, topics, and issues from across the length and breadth of Nigeria and attempt to break them down. It's easy to identify problems, and unfortunately, Nigeria has a lot of those. But we also hope to put some solutions for Nigeria's problems on record. I'll be talking to experts and analysts and those on the ground and in the thick of things for this podcast. So who am I? My name is Tolulakwe Adelaru Balogun. I'm a broadcast journalist. You've seen me on your TV screen, heard me and my voice coming from your radio, have probably seen me hosting and moderating events and panels on all issues Nigerian. You've probably even read my writing since I freelance occasionally. I've collaborated with some of Nigeria's foremost civil society groups and non-governmental organizations. I'll be your host for the 774 NGR podcast. We won't just talk about politics. There are a host of social issues that need to be addressed, and they will be right here on the 774 NGR podcast. So again, welcome. Our very first episode is one that I know is near and dear to many Nigerians' hearts, and that's because it deals with our money, the thing in our pockets, wallets, bank accounts, under the mattresses, or the thing we're all hustling to have more of. But what is the value of our money, especially as Nigeria's economy is in yet another recession? So the topic of today's podcast is, it's the economy, stupid. While the origin of this phase is in debate, many agree that it came about during Bill Clinton's successful presidential campaign in 1992. It seems that the idea was to remind Clinton campaigners that at the end of the day, everything boils down to the economy, and that's true, decades later and from all corners of the world. Before I get into the nitty gritty of Nigeria's economy, let me introduce my guest. Joining me today is Zeal Akaraiwe. Zeal is the CEO of Graham Black Advisory. Zeal enjoyed a prestigious 14-year career working for Standard Chartered Bank in Zambia, London, and Nigeria. He is an experienced financial advisory executive and someone I turn to to often break down the issues concerning Nigeria's economy and fiscal policy. Zeal, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the 774 NGR podcast. Thank you very much, Tulu. All right, so let's get into this by starting with numbers. Nigeria has entered its second recession in five years, with the economy experiencing the worst decline in almost four decades. The National Bureau of Statistics said that Nigeria's gross domestic product recorded negative growth of 3.62% in the third quarter of 2020. Now, it's not so strange to hear that Nigeria's economy is on the decline because like many across the continent and across the world, we've been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. Some would say no one could have predicted the pandemic nor the consequences or even been adequately prepared. So here's my first question, Zeal. Do you agree that no one could have seen Nigeria's recession coming? In a June 2020 report, the World Bank projected that Nigeria would experience a severe economic recession, likely worse than any other since the 1980s. The report was titled Nigeria in Times of COVID-19, Laying Foundations for a Strong Recovery. It said that while the long-term economic impact of the global pandemic is uncertain, the effectiveness of the government's response is important to determine the speed, quality, and sustainability of Nigeria's economic recovery. Besides immediate effects to contain the spread of COVID-19 and stimulate the economy, 
it will be even more urgent to address bottlenecks that hinder the productivity of the economy and job creation. So do you think if there had been no pandemic that Nigeria's economic fortunes would have dipped this much this year or would have been a slower decline? Would we still have entered a recession anyway? Well, I think recessions are, for Nigeria specifically, recessions are overhyped. And um, we are overhyping recessions at the expense of the growth of the economy. Our economy has been, whether you want to use the term contracting or slowing down or declining, for about seven or eight years, we've seen all the signs that should put any reasonable economic manager on serious alert that the economy has been in distress for a while. So whether the, the, this particular recession that we say is the second in five years, my personal opinion, it is the same recession of five years ago. The difference was we made, or rather the issue is we made the fundamental mistake of merely using GDP growth to determine the health of the economy. Yes, statistically, we got out of a recession because our GDP growth was positive. But when you look at the underlying factors that make an economy buoyant, we did not solve any of those problems. Over the last five years, since the last recession, we've had consistently rising inflation, consistently rising unemployment, non-growing productivity, an unstable currency, our expenses, our debt to um, our debt service to revenue ratios have been growing. All the red flags for an economy have been up for five years. So that this recession is not, in my opinion, I mean, statistically and technically, yes, it's a different recession because this is the first time we're going into a recession since the last time we got out. But regarding the health of the economy, this is more like a relapse than a new issue. We never solved the underlying economic issues that started or that we saw declining five years ago. Okay. So when we talk about the economy, it's difficult to do that without talking about numbers. And there's so many numbers in Nigeria's economy. So what I just decided to do is just let's talk about the more current and more recent numbers. And I want you to break it down because when I see these numbers, I'm looking for someone to make sense of it all for me, to, to tell me what 16.66% of something means. So let me give you some of these numbers. So according to the Consumer Price Index report from the National Bureau of Statistics, Nigeria's inflation rates rose by 14.23% year on year, and that was in October 2020, as against 13.71%, which was recorded in September 2020. October figures indicate that there is a persistent increase in 14 months and the highest recorded since March 2018. Also, on a month-by-month -month basis, the headline index increased by 1.54% in October 2020. This is a 0.06% rate higher than the rates recorded in September 2020, which was 1.48%. The composite food index, this is where someone like me feels the crunch rose by 17.38% in October 2020, compared to 16.66% recorded in September 2020. On a month-by-month -month basis, the food sub-index increased by 1.96% in October 2020, up by 0.08% points from 1.88% recorded in September 2020. So I'm asking you, in layman's terms, what does this mean? Even though me as a layman, I can tell you that going to the market, shopping for my family and buying food, that the cost has risen. But my definition and my understanding 
I want you to sort of bridge between what the numbers are telling us and what I'm seeing in the market. Well, what I'll tell a layman regarding looking at inflation numbers is look at it as a comparative value and not an absolute value. So what is mm. the comparative value? Inflation figures are simply telling us that food prices are rising, period. That's it. And that is not a good thing for us as, a, as for a growing economy. When your food prices or general prices in the country are rising faster than your growth. So let's look at it as a comparative value. What the inflation figures are saying are things are more expensive today than they were a year ago by a percentage that's higher than the production of the country, that's mm -hmm. higher than the um, employment of the country, and that's higher than the wage growth of the country. So basically, for every, every Naira you keep, if your savings rate and your production rate and your wage increase rate is less than the inflation rate, then it means over time your population is getting poorer. And let's just look at it as comparative values that tell that story. The individual values are, I mean, the way averages work and the composite works, people start arguing, yes, but I bought this last year and bought it this year at the same price. That's not the point. Mm. The point is they've taken the pricing from different sectors, different areas, rural, urban, food, car. Some things have moved by far. Some things have doubled. Some things have not moved at all. But bottom line is that the overall story is that things are, far more expensive today than they were a year ago, and the rate the prices are increasing is higher than your savings rate, which means if you had 100 Naira last year, now you may have 103 Naira, but the price of that thing is now 114 Naira, you're poorer, bottom line. And I know many people will even say that the only thing that does not increase in Nigeria is salaries. Uh, the electricity tariff has gone up, petrol has gone up, and somehow government says they brought it back down again, but our salaries simply are not um, rising at the rate. So let me ask you, Zeal, do you feel poor from this year to last year? Uh, <laughs> it, it depends. I mean, you know how feelings are. Feelings are individual. Is I, your wallet I, I lighter? Let, let, me, let, let me put it this way. I, if I had an asset, let's start from 2014. If you had an asset that was worth 150 naira, right, in 2014, it would have been worth $1, right? Uh -huh. By 2018, if you had that same asset, it would still be worth 150 naira, but it would now be worth 40 cents. Mm. It would have lost 60% of its dollar-related value. Value. And okay. if you come into today using the free fund, the black market rate, it will be worth 30 cents. So if your entire livelihood was being converted, just for argument's sake, from Naira to dollars at a fixed rate of income, oh, you are certainly, you are like 70% poorer than you were five years ago, based on just exchange rate. Now, I have to put a caveat that exchange rate is not what determines everything, but for some people, and it's a very little number of people, to be honest, whose yeah. um, expenses are dollar-tied. It's not a, as many as we want to believe, but there is, it's significant. So we will be poor. Now, regarding the individuals whose livelihoods have nothing to do directly, not indirectly, but directly with dollars, do they feel poorer? 
it, it depends on the individual expenses. People have had to cut. But looking mm. at the statistics of the number of poor people we have, we don't have the room for many people to feel poorer. I think our poverty rate is well above 70%, you know? So well, that's that's a number that's also going to come up in this conversation because um, yeah. we know that when the president was running for re-election, he said that he had um, lifted millions of Nigerians out of poverty, and even recently we've heard from members of his team that they're still working on lifting a hundred million Nigerians um, out of poverty or something like that. But let's talk so, about leadership so, now. So, <laughs> you want to come? Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just before you go there, instead of asking, do you feel poorer? right a mm. better way to ask the question if you want to rate things is do you feel richer the answer is for everybody is a blatant no it's very mm. simple do you have mm. more savings no is your quality of life better no mm. so it may be possible that i'm struggling harder to maintain status quo so i may yeah. not feel poorer but i'm using 10 times the effort 10 times the energy to be exactly where i was two years ago and that to is stay afloat so do i feel yeah. richer or am i richer no i am not is my quality of life better no it is not do i feel more secure no i do not do i have more hope in the two to five year future of this of the economy no i do not do i have confidence in the people running the economy to make <laughs> things around no i do not okay so how i All feel right. about whether i'm poor or not is almost irrelevant compared to all the other things that sort of make up the answer. So when we talk about the economy and economic decisions and fiscal policy and all of these things, we cannot have these conversations without discussing those in charge of the economy. So this is said to be the second recession since President Muhammadu Buhari became civilian democratic president and the third that has been tied to him as leader. He was um, also head of state and there was a recession at that time as well. Doyin Salami um, has described the president at one time as instinctively not capitalist. Is there something that points us to what the president believes about economic forces, regulations, economic policies that could explain why we're seeing a third recession tied to one leader? Well, <laughs> he's very unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the answer. Maybe he's just one of the very unlucky people that just every time you come in, there's a recession. Maybe he's just has bad luck. Right? I, I think it's significant more than that. But I think, uh -huh. you see, for, for some things regarding, let's just put that, for some things, especially the economy, you need to have two things that I'm not sure our president has. One is a swift reaction time to be able to react to what's going on Second, and in my opinion, significantly more importantly, is very good foresight on what is going to happen with decisions you make. Mm. Given the five years he's been president, he has not, in my opinion, demonstrated any knowledge in any of these two areas at all. This is just my personal opinion. So, for example, he won the elections in 2015 in March were announced immediately. Um, the former president considered immediately. He had almost a two-month lag before he was sworn in. Mm -hmm. And yet, from the time he was announced president till when he announced ministers was eight months. Eight months without having... And I mean, he must have had his reasons, 
But that does not demonstrate to me somebody who understands taking important decisions quickly. And he didn't come up with ministers that were or no, I mean, he came up with the very obvious names that we all thought he would come up with. So it took him eight months to do the obvious, in my opinion. And that's not a good thing with the economy. Um, number two, he has selected initially an economic team. How would I put it? I mean, before he selected the Economic Advisory Committee headed by uh, Dr. Doi Salami. And again, they are just advisory. Ah, we're going <laughs> to talk about advice. them too. Yeah, so... Running the economy is a skill a president will typically not have. What the president will have is a skill to select the right combination of people to do the job. And this is not just the economy. This is what leadership is, in my opinion. Selecting the right set of people to do a specific job. I'm not convinced that he has done that. I'm not convinced he has selected a team and allowed, or not allowed, and ensured that they worked cohesively in the same direction for the same purpose. And I think it, it, the economy is run almost as if it's a ship with very many captains, so it has nearly no direction. Hmm. That's you know my opinion, that's... and I'm a bit extreme. I, have to, I admit I'm being extreme because Which is I, I'm not going to pat anyone on the shoulder when I'm suffering. <laughs> Which is fine, because at the end of the day, we all know that as the president, as you said, and you said something that's very important that I definitely agree with, which is we don't expect him to be the economic expert. But as the president and the leader, we do expect him to bring on the experts, allow them to give the advice, allow them to make the plans, allow them to do what they're meant to do. And then, of course, at the end of the day, if things are successful, he will take the praise. And if they're not successful, he'll take the criticism as he's taking it now. I want to quickly talk about body language because that was something that was very big during his first campaign. But his economic body language, what do you think the president's economic body language is? Do you agree with Doing Salami just on this, where he talks about the president instinctively not being capitalist, more believing in state control and a socialist kind of, a socialist kind of control, but you want the free market dividends? How, how would we even say it? Well, you know, socialism and capitalism are schools of thought and mm -hmm. people belong subject to their individual experience and disposition. You belong to one or the other or somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, from when you look at the people around the president who are close to him, when they speak about their plans, what they do, it's, I would agree on that regard with uh, Dr. Doreen Salami that yes, the president is socialist in terms that the government should do everything. And there's a good justification for that. Some people would argue that that is what the constitution dictates and he's just merely sticking to the constitution. I don't agree, but there is that valid argument that it is debatable. But where we are as a nation regarding the economy, it's not likely that the government can do what needs to be done for the economy to grow at the rate it needs to grow for us to all be um, buoyant Happy. or successful mm -hmm. or comfortable. So there is a balance that needs to be met and the president has not, from his actions, from his utterances and from the behavior of the people around him, he has not demonstrated that he understands that that balance is needed. Okay. So let's, we'll get into the Economic uh, Advisory Council because they're part of my questions, but let's also look at some of the steps we've seen from the presidency um, over the years. There's a lot of things they've done, but I can't get into everything, but I did decide to pick a few things. 
There's the Economic Recovery and Growth Plan, which is a medium-term, all-round developmental initiative focused on restoring growth, investing in people, and building a globally competitive economy. The ERGP was launched in April of 2017, and under that, you had the Voluntary Assets and Income Declaration Scheme. There was also around this and under the ERGP, the introduction of importers and exporters FX window. Um, that has been highly criticized with multiple windows for the exchange rates here in Nigeria. At a point in time, foreign reserves actually hit a five-year high of $46 billion in Q1 of 2018. There was movement of 24 places to a new ranking of 145 among 190 economies on the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index. There was improvement as well from 170 and 169th position in 2016 and 2017. So now to the Economic Advisory Council. It was in September 2019 that the president constituted um, the council. It had Professor Doing Salami as the chairman. Other members were Mohamed Sagagi, uh, Professor Chukuma Soludo, former CBN um, head, Bismarck Rwani as well. Their remit was to advise the president on economic policy matters, including fiscal analysis, economic growth, and a range of internal and global economic issues with the relevant cabinet members and heads of monetary and fiscal agencies. Some more moves. In August of 2019, Nigeria partially closed its land borders, and since October 2019, the borders and trade has been halted via the land borders. This was touted as being in the country's best interest to improve local production and agriculture. So let's take three of these. Let's take the ERGP, the Economic Advisory Council, which you've already touched on, and the border closure. Give me your thoughts on them as actions, as moves, as even if it's on paper to actually move the economy forward. What do you think? Um, without being unnecessarily critical, the ERGP is a very nice document to read. Mm. I don't think it's a document that could ever have been implemented. Um, it's a nice read. It says the right things. It has the right, you know, it's, you know how when something tickles you the right way. But if yeah. you drill down and ask yourself, okay, so when I read the ERGP, I, if I remember correctly, there were at least 20 or more MDAs that had to work together to get it achieved. Now, there's only one person, maybe two, in the whole country who can hold 20 MDAs accountable at the same time. Right. Let me ask now, who is, is that? that? The person, the president, <laughs> and possibly his chief of staff. Possibly. Mm, mm. Yeah, but that is subject to the president saying, go ahead and do this. Or the VP. But again, everything boils down to the president saying, this is what we ought to do. Giving now, that direction. The is the president mm. personally running the ERGP? He's not. So He's in not. the ERGP, some things are crit crucial and they are in the uh, terrain of the Minister for Justice. Some other things are crucial and they're in the terrain of the Minister of Petroleum. Some other things are crucial in the terrain of the Minister for Trade and Investment. Some other things are crucial in the world of customs, which is under the Ministry of Finance. So who will run the ERGP as a project and have mm. all these people accountable to him? Only the President can do that. Now, the question is, is the President doing that? As far as I know, he's not. And so that document, beautiful as it is, the expectation of success from my perspective was very low because okay. that cohesion, I have not seen it being demonstrated in anything in the government. That's the ERGP. 
Two, yeah. you asked about the Economic Advisory Committee. Council, yeah. Economic Advisory Committee, as the name implies, is an advisory committee on the economy. On the economy. And everything doing Salami thinks about the economy, everything Bismarck Rwanda thinks about the economy, everything uh, Charles Soludo thinks about the economy is open and public knowledge. Mm. Um, Bismarck, Doing and Charles, the three that are the most prominent in the advisory committee, are um, very vocal publicly. They write publicly. Um, Bismarck sits on many boards. Everybody yeah. looks forward to his economic analysis in January. He runs his own company. So we all know what they think about the economy. And I can tell you for free, based on what they think about the economy, I'm assuming that what they think is what they're advising the president. And what I'm seeing is contrary to that. So I have mm -hmm. to conclude reasonably that they are advising the president on what he should do, and he's not doing it. <laughs> it I mm -hmm. think that for me is that straightforward. Um, what was the last and thing? Then the land border closure. The land border closure again, almost like the socialist capitalist thing. There's always a school of thought that can explain it in a manner that will make some sense, and so I will give that leeway. However, I think that the timing of the closure um, was very insensitive not mm -hmm. even regarding not even as much regarding nigeria as it took us we as a country uh, forget which regime but we as a country pretty much initiated the african free trade agreement yeah we, we pushed, pushed it, it. We, one we of lobbied the country they all signed and then we were practically the last to sign practically mm. that was very bad then Less than just a few weeks, I think it was four weeks or six weeks, I can't remember, after signing in an Africa free trade agreement that, that promises free movement of people and goods to, uh, for economic development, we then unilaterally, without notice, without consideration for our neighbors, shut our borders. Mm. That was pretty much sticking the finger to everybody and saying, even though we signed this thing, we don't really believe in it. So that alone, in my opinion, was damaging. Now, but you know it hasn't kicked off. It's not kicking off till January the 1st, 2021. It was delayed. Well, not to say that it was meant to I kick agree, off, but it was delayed. But, but, but these and now, things don't kick off for the day. Yeah, it's and now we're doing body language that we're going to open the borders soon, and yet there's no date tied to that. So a lot of people are linking, are, are linking some of the statements from members of the administration about the borders reopening soon to the quote-unquote January 1st kickoff of the um, AFTA agreement. But continue. I, uh, go ahead. But let, let's put it, let me address the point this way. So the government says from January 1, 2021, we're going to start lifting people out of poverty. Mm. And then somebody tells you, well, since that's January, let's put as many people in poverty today. No, it's a build-up. It's not something you start on a day. It's something you build up. You can't say from January 2021, we're going to ease traffic. And then you say, we will wait till January before we start fixing roads. No, it doesn't work. But my opinion, it doesn't work like that. But hey, everybody has their school of thought. Now, Nigerians were very resilient, were very enterprising. So the fact that we have found an uncomfortable, ourselves in an uncomfortable position, and we've worked hard as a people, or a few mm -hmm. group, a people a, to survive it, does not mean that it is because we closed the border that were successful. Mm. What has happened is in spite of closing the border, we're successful. Now, was the, what, now the issue with the border was not the border. The border in itself is a concept. The issue with mm -hmm. the border was that they said things were being smuggled. 
Now, if things are being smuggled to the extent that you believe the only way to stop the smuggling is to close the borders, but you are paying thousands of people to maintain the border integrity and you've not yep. fired anybody. Yep. That doesn't make sense. It's like, I you have a gate man hmm. and I have, or let me say gate man, I have, a sec- I have security in my compound, right? Mm-hmm. The security's job is to patrol the compound, not just open and close the gate. And then I keep saying, oh, guess what? Every time I come out, my side mirrors are missing. Something is missing from the house. And therefore, don't open the gate for anybody to go in or out again. The thieves don't come in from the gate. And I've not fired the security company. Then there's something wrong with me. So we have people, thousands of people, we spend a lot of money on. To Public maintain money. our border integrity. If mm-hmm. you're saying that the border integrity is so compromised that we have to totally shut it down at the expense of everybody. And yet, these people are still being paid. Nobody's been reprimanded. There's no reform in that sector. Then it doesn't make sense. And the thing is, there's so much about this border closure we can talk about. And what you're saying is something that I really aligned with. Because even before the border closure, the allegations and the proof, there have been numerous media houses who have done um, reports on the border situation and how customs officials are enriching themselves. And it didn't stop. In fact, reportedly, people actually made more money illegally by graft or whatever means you want to call it because the borders were closed. And yet the actual true aim has not been achieved um, since the border has been closed. But we'll get into that because, of course, we know that they're saying that they're going to reopen it. We're going to look at what happens when they reopen it and see what the numbers are. So, Zeal, we talk about these problems. And something I said in, um, in the beginning was that we also want to talk about the solutions to the problem. Um, So looking at when Nigeria will exit recession, the Minister for Finance, Budget and National Planning, Zainab Ahmed, on November 23rd, 2020, just shortly after it was announced that we were in recession, um, said the country will exit recession by the first quarter of 2021 at the latest, as the Nigerian government is working towards reversing the declining economic trends in the country. This would be historically fast. She said that the economy would be restored on the path of sustainable, inclusive growth in no time using the Nigeria Economic Sustainability Plan that is now being implemented. The Nigeria Economic Sustainability Plan 2020, I know many people may not have heard of it. It was produced by the presidential committee led by Vice President Yemi Oshibajo in response to the health and economic challenges that have um, happened to Nigeria because of coronavirus. Now, on the other hand, the World Bank is saying that the recession could last until 2023 unless reforms are sustained. So between Nigeria exiting very fast within like probably just six months of entering recession um, or less, um, as the minister is saying in the first quarter of 2021 versus the World Bank telling us that unless we continue or we do certain things, we will not exit recession until 2023. Where do you find yourself? Looking at everything that's happening in the country, What's your estimation of the timeline of this recession? Even though you said earlier you feel like it's the same recession because we have not addressed the issues from the previous one. Um, again, your, your question forces an answer that's not going to help us. I, I, I wouldn't ask anybody when are we going to exit recession because the definition of exiting recession is when we have uh, positive GDP growth. And if GDP growth is 0.001%, which is insignificant, then that's positive. Yeah. And then we're out of recession. So what I would rather prefer to attempt to answer would mm. be, when is Nigeria going to have a GDP growth that's sustainable 
to achieve the aims we want of a better life for everybody? That's the question we should ask the minister. Not when we're going to exit the recession. He'll tell us next year. So what? So what if we exit the recession, uh, technically, and yet unemployment is rising? So yeah. what if we exit the recession and our debt service to revenue ratios is way above 90%? So what if we exit recession and our productivity has not increased? Do you understand? Those are the yeah. important things. When are we going to have a growth model we have inflation at 14 percent when are we going to have a growth model in the country that caters for this where inflation is going to come down and our growth is going to be more than inflation and more than the population growth that's the question to ask the minister and then when they give us a time i'm sure they won't be able to give a time then we can ask what's the plan how are you going to improve productivity in the country because it is productivity that is going to spur employment the government is not the one that is going to employ people. The government is going to create an atmosphere for productivity. If Zeal can produce things, Zeal is going to produce things by employing people to do more. When are you going to, when is the government going to ensure those? What are the things making our productivity low? Let's take the agri sector that's by far the largest employer of labor They're in the labor. country. Yeah. What allows people to go to the farm to work Productively, security. Do we have security? Just two weeks ago, 100 people, 112, 11 people or something, went to the farm and got their heads separated from their bodies. And all we did was our president was in shock. What do you mean you're in shock? SBM Intelligence, four years ago, wrote that the Middle Belt crisis is going to cause a food crisis into the farm. For yeah. This was four years ago. Five years, the president is still in shock that there's insecurity in the farmlands. So those are the things. If we do not address insecurity, we cannot produce. If we do not address power, we cannot produce. If we do not address education, we cannot bring out people that can produce. Those are the issues we should Transportation, be about. logistics, yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Those are the things we should be emphasizing on. Those are the things that will generate growth. Just coming out and, I mean, <laughs> floating around 1%, 2% growth with a population growth of 2 to 3% and inflation of 14%. And the, mm -hmm. the government wants to be patted on the back that, oh, we're out of, we're not that. We may be out of a recession, but are we growing? Mm. There's no point being stunted as a country because if you're stunted, it's only a matter of time before, you, before things go backward into recession again. So we don't want to play yo-yo game with recession. We're in today, we're out tomorrow. We're in. When are we going to start growing? When is the government going to focus and emphasize on proper fiscal policy, monetary policy, no interference of the executive in the legislature and the judiciary, so that when there are disputes, it is handled. When is the economic policy going to align with the fiscal policy? When is it that the monetary policy authorities are going to do things that will boost fiscal policy and vice versa and not counter them? Right now, we have policies countering each other. That's why we're not growing. Mm. Well, you have conversations like this, and one thing I do appreciate is that numbers genuinely, and most for the most part, they don't lie. And when you have people who can then turn those numbers around and make it make sense, um, it really unfortunately paints a bleak picture for Nigeria's economy, and that's where we're going next. So Nigeria is unfortunately a very vulnerable country. We're commodity dependent and debt ridden. The National Bureau of Statistics recently, um, the report that they released in 2019, that's not recent, sorry. Uh, the 2019 Poverty and Inequality in Nigeria report 
highlighted that 40% of the total population, or about 83 million people, live below the country's poverty line of 137,430 naira, about just $381.75 per year. We've not diversified our economy away from oil enough. According to the Debt Management Office, Nigeria's total debt stock, foreign and domestic, as of June 2020, stood at 31.01 trillion naira, that's $85.9 billion, um, an 8.31% increase when compared with 28.63 trillion, that's 79.3 billion naira, recorded in March of 2020. And we're still looking to borrow Hang on, hang on. Hang on, uh -huh. Let me give you two figures, roughly. I have these figures off the top of my head. June 2015, our mm -hmm. total debt was about 10 trillion. June 2020, our total debt was about 30 trillion. We tripled our debt in five years. Mm -hmm. So, roughly. And the question I keep asking is that is, we went indebted. And if you think about it over a five year period, 20 trillion divided by five is 4 trillion a year. When you think about it, that between in this fourth republic between 99 and 2015 i don't think there was our average annual budget was something around three or four trillion yeah but in five years yeah the population have grown things but we were borrowing on average every year what was funding the entire country before something is wrong where is the money going we are not seeing the money in any growth so where is the money going but Those is the money, so this is, a, this is an interesting point you bring up. Is the money for quote-unquote direct growth? Because according to the administration, they're financing um, infrastructural projects that have laid dormant, that have either not been completed or, or maybe were not even started from a previous party. So they're talking about that. We've seen them talk about the Sakuk Fund as well and what they're using that to finance. So if we're saying it's not linked to direct growth, and one of the easiest ways a country can spur growth is putting money into, um, into infrastructural growth, into construction, into development, uh, um, physical development, then what? a serious misconception to me. Very okay. A lot of okay. Do, does the country need infrastructure? Yes. But the government's responsibility in infrastructure is the infrastructure that makes business easy. So, for example, and we overflowed this example, but it's very relevant. What infrastructure does the government need to spend on for companies like Uber to be successful? Mm, roads, the government does telecommunication, security. Simple. The government does not even have to invest in telecommunication because it's privatized. All mm. you need is two things security and a road network and uber will do the employment for you will generate the income for you and pay the taxes for you the government does not have to buy the cars mm -hmm. and that's the mistake we keep making on infrastructure so for example let's go back to gsm gs telecommunications is infrastructure what the government did was lay down the legal framework for gsm companies to come in and work provide security for them to have their base stations everywhere they even paid us. We didn't spend to build that infrastructure. We made money from, the, from allowing the infrastructure. So let's go to rail, which is one of the best the big thing now. goods, right? The mm -hmm. government does not have to build railroads. It's a waste, in my opinion, of government time, energy, and resources. The mm -hmm. government could easily have treated it like the GSM companies, concession railways. 
provide security along the railways, concession them, and tell companies, come and bid. Who wants to run Lagos, Ibadan, or uh, Shagamo? So that that is a living area for people that work in Lagos. Who wants to run Lagos, Kano, which is commodities? Who wants to run Lagos, Aba, which is containers? People will con concession it. People will pay you for that concession, and then they will invest. The government does not have the money to be putting into individual businesses. Yeah. The government simply can't. And so the government needs to invest in infrastructure by laying the foundation for businesses to invest, not for the government to be investing in the businesses. That's the fundamental error this administration has made. And that's what I believe Dr. Doin Salami was referring to, that the, gov the, the government is socialist thinking, not capitalist. So, Basil, do you are you telling me that there are not people telling the government this? Our debt is at the highest level. We don't even know how many years or how many generations it's going to take Nigeria to pay off that debt. If there are easier, cheaper ways to get to where we need to go as a country, are you telling me that there are not people saying this? Or is it that there's a reason government is choosing to go the hard path? You know, like I said, because it's an ideology, you buy into it or you don't. Are there people saying this? I can bet my skin the Economic Advisory Committee is saying it. I will bet my skin. Well, this is what they say publicly. I don't yeah. imagine they will say something different privately. This is what I believe. I believe they are being told, but it's a school of thought. And this is one of the disadvantages. And I don't want to be critical on the president as an individual. But mm. when you pick leaders in any sphere, I've interviewed people, I've hired people. Beyond what you say you can do, there are other things you test for. How more, how amenable are you to changing trends? And I can tell you for free, our president, our older generation in this country, after a certain age barrier, they are not, what's the word? Amenable. They're not Or understanding changing trends. They, they live in the past. And that is a totally different non-economic discussion. But they live in the past. They cannot project themselves through the time barrier. And that's what we're suffering was suffering from a mindset when there was a lot of money, the military ruled, and the government did everything. The world has moved on from that model. Yeah. Okay, so I want us to start wrapping up. You've talked about some solutions that came up, and I find them to be very interesting. And again, the question I ask is, there no one telling them? But this idea of an ideology or an inflexibility, as it may be, um, with those who lead us, it, it, it's dampening. It's dampening and it's depressing. But beyond that, we are... The president is going to be here until 2023 before the next possible uh, change of leadership in Nigeria. What, and I don't want to make this question solely about him, but because he is at the helm of affairs for the next few years. So whether we exit the recession in the first quarter of 2021, like the budget, um, like the minister is saying, or we exit it in 2023, like the World Bank is saying, if we don't keep up the reforms, what are the immediate steps of a country in recession that you expect to see? And I'm asking this, even keeping in context the fact that you said that we can exit recession on 0.001 positive growth. But for a country that has 83 million people living in poverty, we are said to be the extreme poverty capital of the world. We have insecurity all around the country, but the middle belt, the area where food, the food basket of the nation is coming from, we're finding that farmers cannot go to farm because it's literally a, the difference between life and death. Um, road network continues to be a serious issue for us. What do we do to not just get out of recession, but 
really jumpstart Nigeria's economy? So this is, that, that's, a, that's a very important question. And it's, it's, uh, there's no magic bullet. There's no elixir. A lot of things have to be done simultaneously. A lot of things. Um, one. Well, quick, sorry, before you go into that, those things that need to be done, are they going to be hard on government and the people, just the people, just government? Because you also have a moral justification everybody. issue as well sometimes. Everybody, every single, okay. every single body. Uh, the government may be, it may be necessary for the government to spearhead it because the government is the one that controls law enforcement. So if mm. the government says we're doing this and you don't do it, if you don't enforce the law, then the law is a waste. Okay. So it's, but everybody has to align one way or the other. One of the key things, because it's an economic podcast, I'll stick to the things that are economy related. One of the key things that we need to do is we, I believe, and I use the term inverted pyramid, that we operate our economy on an inverted pyramid model. And how long can a, a pyramid that is inverted stand? Not very long. Why do I say that? So you, we talk about diversification, right? And everybody assumes or believes or behaves like diversification is from oil and gas to something else. And I say, no, let's look at it from industry perspective. Let's diversify from the extractive industry to the productive industry. And diversification does not mean abandoning. I'm not saying abandoning. I'm just, because once, what we do with our grip is the same mistake we made in oil and gas. We extract the oil from the ground. What do we do with it? Nothing. What's the value addition? Nothing. Nothing. We throw it out, export it. Then we turn around when somebody else has added value to it. And that value addition is what creates jobs and revenue and changes people's lives. We throw that away. Then when somebody else in some other country has done that for his people, we go and buy the finished product. We do the same thing with agric. We, ex we extract cocoa from the farms. What do we do with the cocoa? Nothing. We export it, then import there's it. No, there's goods. no value chain. There's no value chain. What do we do with cashew nuts? What do we do with tomatoes? Nothing. Nigeria is, one, is the largest producer of cassava in the world. Nigeria imports ethanol. Are we crazy? Just, so these are the things. We, if, because we think extractive industry is what we need. No, we need to produce. Some of the countries like Switzerland are the largest cocoa processors in the world. Do not produce a an ounce of cocoa. They don't the even have good agricultural land. The world's largest cashew processor is Vietnam. They, they buy eight, 50 to 80% of all their cashew nuts from Nigeria, Ivory Coast, and Ghana. All they do is process it. And that processing is what creates jobs. Look at the oil. Let's take any oil company apart from Shell that's very big. If you pick any of the international oil companies in Nigeria, none of them has more than 2,500 staff. That's all. That's all they have. But if you had refineries, do you know how many thousands of people? And the refinery, by the time you're refining, there's a value chain attached mm -hmm. to refining in moving the products around, in maintaining the, all of those things. We've thrown all of that away. away. So if we don't start producing, and we say, well, we import a lot, but if we don't start producing, and number two, if we start focusing on production, the one thing we need to produce stuff is power. You will find that our attitude towards power will change. Right now, we see power as a luxury, what I will use to put on my AC and charge my phone. Other countries, there's a chart 
um, after this, I'll share it with you, where you see the percentage of power produced that's used domestically and in industries. Mm. All these sensible countries have it in industries, multiples of domestic, as is the opposite. Again, our thinking, our reaction, our behavior is inverted from what spurs growth. We think in the short term, we don't think in the long term. We think extractive, we don't think processing. So from an economic perspective, until we start producing locally, we produce 1.8 million barrels of oil, we refine none. That is value addition. That is madness. We produce thousands, millions of tons of cassava. We don't produce, we don't process all of it. Until we on, yeah. So we spend about 12 to 15 billion dollars every year importing petroleum related products, products. Mm -hmm. and we have four refineries so if our refineries were working guess what we will still spend but we will not be spending it in dollars which means that we would have been saving in dollars 15 billion dollars every year calculate that over the life of 10 years of a country so those are the mistakes we've made number two policy we need to have a long-term vision for the country of at least 20 years and have policies that will be coherent and cohesive for the 20-year window and enforce that those it's not a sprint and enforce that it's done what do we need the central bank to do right now we have a central bank that's semi that's government it does everything if it's schools it's, it's doing schools it's doing agriculture it's doing livestock He's doing everything but monetary policy. just laughable. Well, he, have... he has gotten to somewhere that many people have not gone to in recent times. He has another term. So obviously the president is happy with him. Well, if the president that we've agreed has significant limitations on how to grow an economy, is happy with the people running the economy, <laughs> so we're in trouble. Okay. That explains our predicament completely and entirely. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue. We're saying something else. So until we focus on these things and allow, how would I put it? So allow the specific arms of the economy to work seamlessly and cohesively by enforcing, by implementing and enforcing the appropriate policies for where we want the country to be in 20 years. Until we sit down, it's a design thing. It's not a fluke. You don't stumble and, I mean, you know how some people say, oh, how did she get pregnant? It was a mistake. Pregnancy is not a mistake. <laughs> she <laughs> she fell. She fell pregnant. <laughs> she fell pregnant. I mean, you don't. You don't. You, you cannot mistakenly fix your economy. It's mm. a design. You sit down. You have that design itself. You see. So the ERGP gave me hope in that I believe the government was even thinking of the design. But after you think of a design and you design the design, if you have no capacity to implement it or drive it, then you've just wasted everybody's time. So those, we need to cohesively do that. Get the policies, get all those things. Not just get them because once you have this discussion to government, they will toss out policies from all sorts of drawers and all that that we have them. Yeah. What's the point happening yeah. what you're not driving, enforcing and implementing? And I think that's the key thing. I don't think there's anything I'm saying or anything I would suggest that's novel or brand new or hasn't been done in the last 20 years. The issue is, are we committed to it? Do we understand that the existence of the economy is dependent on making sure that these policies are driven and run successfully? I'm not convinced that we understand that. That was a mouthful, sorry. 
it, it is a mouthful and you know even if we talk about solutions it's necessary for us to be realistic about where we are so while you've given solutions for the fact that these things must be driven from the top government sets policies sets regulations sets the framework sets the pace sets the tone and at the end saying that you're not convinced we're ready or, or not even ready that we are um we're completely aware of what we need to do it it's it's dampening it's depressing but i think it's also necessary for us to very realistically face what is in front of nigeria we have as you said population growth of over two percent every single year yet our gdp growth <laughs> is not even half of the growth of our population and we don't we're not ready to have these conversations i saw that the national population commission um, has somehow patted themselves on the back, said they have all these things that they use, everything other than a census, and has said Nigeria is about 208, 210 million people now. And I'm thinking to myself, how are we sustaining that many people? If the number is true, because there, again, there's the politics around it and all these other things, but taking them, taking the number at face value, what is Nigeria giving 200 and something million people? And that number will change next year education, transportation, health, security, all of those things are unfortunately at some of the lowest levels, not just for the continent, but even for any country around the world. So as you said, one thing I do like what you said is that economic growth is not accidental. It is intentional and it is a design. Zeal, thank you so much for joining me. You're always one of those I look forward to talking to and, you know, really getting into the conversation. This is not the last time. I know I'm going to be calling on you to break a number of things down as we get into AFTA as well. Maybe when we do exit recession, we'll talk about some of those numbers and we have some um, more information um, about what Nigeria's economic situation will look like going into 2021. So let me say thank you once again for joining me on the 774 NGR podcast. Thank you very much, Sulu. All right, so I look forward to having Zeal back. So don't forget, you can tune in to the 774 NGR podcast anytime. Um, we're going to be talking about a number of issues. This is one on the economy. I have something on the social side of Nigeria coming up. We're going to be talking about gender-based violence very soon. So that's definitely one you don't want to miss. And if you have suggestions of podcasts, topics that you'd like me to take, please, of course, make sure you reach out to us on Twitter at 774NGR underscore. And we also have more social media accounts. Until next time, I'm Tolu Lokwe, Adela Rupalo.